0: Well, thank you uh, so much for coming today. Uh, my name is John Maniscalco, and I'm the Director for Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And we're here today to talk about the next uh, serious legal challenge to the uh, Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Um, right, at, right after uh, the Obama, uh, Obamacare was enacted into law, the next two years are really dominated over the constitutionality, um, or the debate over the constitutionality, over the individual mandate. And uh, when the Supreme Court um, somewhat creatively upheld the constitutionality of the individual mandate, the Obama administration went on something of a victory lap. Um, The president himself said that uh, Obamacare is settled law and is here to stay. But that may have been premature, um, and uh, that's because what was largely overlooked at the time was a provision of Obamacare which said that um, in states where the exchanges were set up by the state itself were the only places that the employer mandate taxes, to a certain extent the individual mandate taxes, and the exchange subsidies could be implemented. But despite uh, the text of the legislation, uh, the Obama administration went ahead and implemented all of these provisions in the 36 states in which the federal government itself created the exchanges. Last month, the DC Circuit Court held that in the Halbig case that the president uh, or the administration violated the law by doing this. Uh, But on the same day, um, the Fourth Circuit Court said that the uh, administration was actually acting in concert with the law. Um, And today, to discuss those two cases and what we should expect to happen next, we have the two people who did not overlook this issue and were the first to alert the nation of it. Uh, first, we have Michael Cannon, who is the Cato Institute's uh, director of health policy studies. Before that, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Republican—I'm uh, sorry, the Senate Republican Policy Committee—and um, uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in American government from uh, the University of Virginia and master's degrees in economics and law and economics from George Mason. Also speaking today is Jonathan Adler. He's the uh, professor of law and director for the Center of, uh, I'm sorry, for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. Prior to joining the faculty there, uh, Professor Adler clerked for the Honorable David Centel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And uh, before that, he worked at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where he directed CEI's Environmental Studies Program. He holds a B.A. uh, from Yale University and a J.D. from George Mason University School of Law. And with that, I'll turn it over to Michael.
1: So these health insurance exchanges, once again, you go on mahealthconnector.org
2: and CRs in Massachusetts, um, will be these new shopping places, and they'll be the place that people go to get their subsidies for health insurance. In the law, it says if the states don't provide them, the federal backstop will. The federal government has been sort of slow in putting out its backstop, I think partly because they want to sort of squeeze the states to do it. I think. What's important to remember politically about this is if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. But your citizens still pay the taxes that support this bill. So you're essentially saying your citizens are going to pay all the taxes to help all the other states in the country. I hope that that's a blatant enough political reality that states will get their act together and realize there are billions of dollars at stake here in setting up these exchanges and that they'll do it. But, you know, once again, the politics can get ugly around this. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Professor Gruber, uh, for, for, for being here today. The, uh, the issue that, that we're presented with today uh, was, uh, was, was ruled upon uh, by the DC Circuit on July 22, 2014. Uh, the DC Circuit is often known as the second highest court in the land, and what the, what the court did in a case called Halbig v. Sebelius, is it ruled that the President of the United States is violating the law, and not in a small way. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, also known as Obamacare or the ACA, directs states to establish health insurance exchanges. And if a state doesn't establish a health insurance exchange, then the law directs the federal government to establish an exchange within that state. The PPACA specifically authorizes the IRS to issue subsidies to certain taxpayers who purchase health insurance, quote, through an exchange established by the state. And those subsidies, because of the complicated and interrelated uh, machinery of the PPACA, those subsidies directly trigger penalties against employers under the law's employer mandate and against individuals under the law's individual mandate. Now, despite the clear language of the uh, eligibility rules for these subsidies. In August 2011, the IRS announced that it would issue subsidies through exchanges established by the federal government, as well as exchanges established by the states. In, uh, by January of 2013, in a development that surprised everyone, including me, uh, the uh, 36 states, two-thirds of, of, uh, of the nation, had refused or otherwise failed to establish exchanges, and the federal government then established exchanges for those states. In January of this year, 2014, the Internal Revenue Service started issuing those subsidies in not only in states that had established their own exchanges, but in states that had not established exchanges, and thereby began subjecting not only offering those subsidies to 5 million people in those 36 states, but also began subjecting to the law's individual and employer mandate taxes tens of millions of uh, individuals and employers in those states. As I mentioned, on July 22nd, the D.C. Circuit ruled that those subsidies are illegal. The court held basically this, the eligibility rules for these subsidies are clear, that that those subsidies are available only, quote, through an exchange established by the state. The PPACA does not authorize those subsidies through an exchange established by the federal government. The law does not deem an exchange established by the federal government to have been established by the state in which it operates. There's no ambiguity about whether the law authorizes those subsidies in states with a federal exchange. And because those subsidies trigger penalties under the individual employer mandates, the fact that the Obama administration is issuing those subsidies in 36 states where it has no authority to do so means that uh, that it is also giving the individual and employer mandate taxes, quote, broader effect than they would have if credits were limited to state-established exchanges. So in effect, the court ruled that the president is taxing, borrowing, and spending tens of billions of dollars that no Congress ever authorized, that the president induced five million people to enroll in the PPACA's exchanges by offering them money he had no authority to spend, and that the president is subjecting to the PPACA's mandate taxes tens of millions of individuals and employers who are statutorily exempt from those taxes. Now, the court said it reached this decision with reluctance, but because quote, will likely have significant consequences for the millions of individuals receiving tax credits through federal exchanges. And I'm going to use tax credits and subsidies here interchangeably, because even though the law calls them tax credits, they're really just payments the IRS makes to insurance companies. But the court also said that if that is a problem, it's a problem with the underlying statute itself, and it's a problem that only Congress can fix. Now, the and this opinion was authored by Judge Thomas Griffith, whom The Washington Post has described as widely respected by people in both parties and those who have worked with him elsewhere regard him as a sober lawyer with an open mind. And his appointment to the DC Circuit drew praise from prominent Democrats, including then-Senator Barack Obama, who voted uh, to confirm him to that post. Now, how did we get to this point where the second highest court in the nation has ruled that the president is violating a law in a way that could not only affect the insurance decisions of millions of people, the tax liabilities of millions of people, the fate of his signature domestic achievement, but that could even affect elections. And so what I want to to do is sort of tell the story of how we arrived here and how Jonathan and I came to be working on this issue. When the PPACA became law in March of 2010, uh, as John mentioned, uh, what immediately took center stage were the challenges to the law's constitutionality. State attorneys general and others immediately began filing lawsuits to overturn the entire statute. And so, so there is another storyline that, uh, that, that was developing at the same time, but that didn't receive any attention. And it began when a former Department of Justice official named Tom Christina noticed that the law authorizes its health insurance subsidies only through an exchange established by the state, not through federal fallback exchanges. Like every other feature of the law, this is almost totally overshadowed by the challenges to the individual mandate, the challenges to the law's Medicaid mandate, Christina mentioned it in a December 2010 presentation at the American Enterprise Institute. Jonathan came across that in his, uh, search, uh, in his research on the, the law. He mentioned it to me, this feature to me, in an email in August 2011. That's when I learned about it about 17 months after uh, the law was, this 2000-page law was passed. And at that point, you still had federal courts that were ruling on the constitutionality of the individual mandate. It was later that month, in August 2011, that the IRS issued a regulation proposing to offer those subsidies through federal exchanges as well. Jonathan and I were aware of this, that that was exceeding the IRS's authority, and so we immediately began talking to reporters. Now at the time, we thought that this was a drafting error. I I think I speak for Jonathan, I know you can speak for myself. I thought this was a mistake that the authors of the law had inadvertently made. But as we researched this, because What it does, what this feature of the law does, is it allows states to veto major parts of the PPACA's regulatory scheme. The subsidies that it uh, makes available in exchanges, the employer mandate, and to a large extent, the individual mandate. So I I assumed, as most people have assumed, that this was a mistake. But as Jonathan and I researched this issue over the past three years, we realized something that came as a surprise to both of us. This was not a mistake. Congress meant to do this. The people who wrote the PPACA meant to do this. Now, that's not to say that everyone in Congress liked this provision. Certainly, uh, supporters of the law uh, do not like this provision now. I, and most who voted for this bill were probably unaware of it. But here's what we learned from our research into the statute and the legislative history. And I'll always spend a little bit of time on the statute. I expect Jonathan will spend a little more time. Uh, and as far as we know, no one has researched this issue as much as we have. Far from being a typo, these provisions of the statute that limit exchanges to subsidies uh, established by states are consistent and they are tightly worded. The, the eligibility rules for these subsidies refer solely to exchanges, established by quote, established by the state. The eligibility rules use that phrase explicitly twice and by cross-reference another seven times. They never deviate from that language. Whereas other parts of the statute, authorizing tax credits for small businesses who, give their employees access to insurance through an exchange, use that phrase, an exchange, without qualifier, without distinguishing between state and federal exchanges, this provision of the law does distinguish. And it distinguishes between the two consistently. The law also defines, uh, for those who who aren't sure what state means, the law helpfully includes a definition of state. It defines state to mean uh, the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So here we have an example of Congress deeming a non-state to be a state, and thereby authorizing these subsidies within uh, that polity. Similarly, the statute says that if a territory creates such an exchange, it shall be treated as a state. Again, you have Congress drawing an equivalence between something that is not a state and a state, so that residents of, of, of that polity can, uh, will be eligible for subsidies. But the statute contains no such equivalence language for exchanges established by the federal government. Simply put, the entire statute is fully consistent with the requirement that taxpayers be enrolled in state-established exchanges in order to receive the tax credits or subsidies that are available through exchanges. The statute is clear, the statute is consistent, and it is unambiguous on this point. As for the legislative history, the most important thing to, uh, to understand about the legislative history of this provision is how little legislative history there is. There are three interrelated reasons for this. first, as uh, the New Republic's Jonathan Cohn told NPR in January of 2010, exchanges got very little attention during the debate the initial debate over this this law and that's because quote it's not a hot button issue like abortion or the public option. If you follow this debate, you know that there were much higher profile issues that were being debated. There was some talk about the difference between the House approach to exchanges, which would have had one nationwide exchange run by the federal government, and the Senate bill's approach to exchanges, which would have had exchanges run by the states. But it didn't receive nearly the attention that these other issues received. The second reason there's little legislative history uh, is that this feature was unremarkable. Offering subsidies to residents of states that implemented federal programs and withholding those subsidies from states that were uncooperative is something the Congress does all the time. In fact, congressional Democrats did the exact same thing elsewhere in the PPACA when they threatened to revoke all Medicaid subsidies from states that did not implement the law's Medicaid expansion. A third reason uh, is that, with only rare exceptions that prove the rule, everyone in Congress expected that all states would establish exchanges. So that's just another reason why this, this provision was unremarkable and didn't receive any attention. But what scant legislative history does touch on this question supports the plain meaning of the statute. that let, these, uh, the, these parts of the legislative history show that every comprehensive health care bill advanced by Senate Democrats, including, finally, the PPACA, withheld exchange subsidies from non-compliant states, even in federal exchanges. It shows that Senate Democrats added the restrictive language through an exchange established by the state to their bill throughout the legislative process. And it shows that at least some House Democrats were aware of this feature and even complained about it before going on to vote for the PPACA and this language anyway. So in 2009, so here's basically a, a, a sketch of how uh, of, of, uh, of the legislative history as uh, relates to these provisions of the PPACA. In 2009, House Democrats approved a bill that would have created a single nationwide health insurance exchange run by the federal government. States could run their own exchanges if they chose, and the subsidies would be available in those state-run exchanges as well. But there's explicit language saying that uh, the subsidies would be available in either type of exchange. The Senate was a different story. To hold together all 60 Democrats and overcome a Republican filibuster, Senate Democratic leaders had to accede to the demands of senators like Ben Nelson and Joe Lieberman that the Senate bill's exchanges be run by states. That, created another pro- that political problem created another problem for the authors of the Senate bills, and that is that Congress cannot command states to implement federal programs. It can only create incentives for states to do so, and that's what Senate Democrats did. When the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee approved a health care bill in September of 2009, it offered health insurance subsidies only in states that helped to, imp- helped to implement that bill. It withheld subsidies for four years in states that failed to establish exchanges and withheld subsidies permanently in states that failed to implement that bill's version of the employer mandate. In fact, during a markup of this bill, Help Committee Republicans got in on the game too. They offered an amendment that would would have given new Medicaid subsidies only to states that agreed to establish a Republican version of a health insurance exchange. In October of 2009, The Senate Finance Committee approved a bill that offered subsidies uh, solely, quote, through an exchange established by the state. That's where the, the provisions in the PPACA came from, is from the Senate Finance Committee bill. When asked during a markup how the Finance Committee, the Senate's Tax Writing Committee, could consider a bill directing states to establish exchanges, a subject that lies outside of the Finance Committee's jurisdiction. Committee chairman and author and lead author of the PPACA, Max Baucus responded that the bill's subsidies are in fact tax credits, which are in the committee's jurisdiction, that the entire purpose of exchanges is to make these tax credits uh, uh, available, and that the bill places conditions on those tax credits, and that is how the Senate Finance Committee was able to direct states to establish exchanges by making that uh, uh, performance of that task a condition of their residents receiving those tax credits. Now, when Democratic senators and Senate staff and White House staff convened in Majority Leader Harry Reid's office in late uh, 2009 to merge these two committee-approved bills, the HELP bill and the finance bill, together, this is in October and November of 2009, to, to create the PPACA, they not only retained the finance language, restricting subsidies to exchanges established by the state, they strengthened that language. They added another mention of that restrictive phrase to the tax to the subsidy eligibility provisions when they when they were crafting the PPACA. So throughout the process, we have Democrats inserting this language, saying that subsidies are, are available only through state established exchanges. Uh, now the finance bill also originally when it when it passed uh, when it cleared the finance committee. Conditioned tax credits to small businesses on states enacting certain health insurance regulations, but Senate Democrats dropped that requirement. They dropped that condition on the small business tax credits from the PPACA, perhaps because it was redundant. The finance bill also conditioned its subsidies to individuals, which are the ones at issue in Halvig uh, and the and related cases, on states enacting those same insurance regulations, and those individual subsidies created a much larger financial incentive for states to act, so there really wasn't any need for them to condition those subsidies on, uh, or to, to condition the small business tax credits on those, uh, on states taking those steps. Now, after Senate Democrats had passed the PPACA in the wee hours of the morning on, on uh, Christmas Eve in uh, 2009, House Democrats actually complained about this feature of the law. In early January 2010, 11 Texas Democrats wrote President Obama and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi warning that the PPACA's approach to exchanges was like the state children's health insurance program. The state children's health insurance program, or SCHIP, operates like the Medicaid program. If states implement a compliant SCHIP program, then they get federal funds. If they don't, they get no federal funds, their residents get no subsidies. These 11 Texas Democrats wrote the president and Speaker Pelosi warning that the PPACA's approach to exchanges was like the state children's health insurance program in that if a state did not implement a compliant exchange, its residents would not see, quote, any benefit and, quote, millions of people will be left no better off than before Congress acted. (laughs) Veteran NPR reporter Julie Rovner reported on this letter, and her account uh, confirms that this is how these House Democrats interpreted the, the, the PPACA's exchange provisions. She wrote that these House Democrats, quote, worried that because leaders in their state oppose the health bill, they won't bother to create an exchange, leaving uninsured residents with no way to benefit from the new law. This is the aforementioned exception, exception that, pr- that proves the rule. As far as we know, it's the only time any of the PPACA's congressional supporters took seriously the idea that states might refuse to comply, might refuse to create exchanges, and the reactions are telling. Those who feared state resistance warned the PPACA gives states the ability to block the bill's benefits, and everyone else ignored those fears because they assumed all states would comply. But after Massachusetts deprived Senate Democrats of their 60-seat majority by electing Republican Scott Brown in a special election in mid-January 2010, the Senate-passed PPACA became the only bill that could pass Congress. House Democrats, including those 11 members from Texas who complained about the feature, and Speaker Pelosi, to whom they complained, voted for the PPACA, including its provision offering subsidies only in exchanges established by the state. This shows us what their intent was. They were given one, fate gave them one choice. You could either pass this bill and whatever is in this bill, for better or for worse, or you could get no health care bill at all. So when they voted for the PPACA, they voted for these provisions restricting tax credits, restricting subsidies to state-established exchanges, revealing that that was indeed their intent, even if they didn't like that part of the the bill very much. So even though Democratic senators and staffers have sworn up and down that their intent was always to authorize subsidies through federal exchanges, that's not what their actions show their intent was. And importantly, there is nothing I've talked about what we have found in the legislative history on uh, that bears on this question. What we have not found, and what no one has found is anything from the legislative history showing or suggesting that members of Congress who voted for the PPACA intended that this bill, that this law would issue subsidies through federal exchanges. They've had three years to come up with something, some contemporaneous statement from the legislative history saying, hey that, what, what we're saying the law says now, that's what we meant uh, back then, too. That's what we intended when we were putting this law together. But they've come, up em- they've come up empty. So the only record we have of what Congress intended is what Congress did. And what Congress did is 180 degrees different from what the Obama administration now claims Congress wanted to do. So with with that, Sketch of the, the the statute and the legislative history. I'm going to turn things over to Jonathan Adler now, who will talk a little bit about the cases, and then I'm going to have some concluding thoughts when he's done about the political and policy impl- implications of the Holbrook ruling. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Michael. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be to be here. Um, let me say this uh, before getting into the cases: uh, a tiny bit about how I got into this um, uh, this issue. Um, One of the major focuses of my scholarship has been looking at the way the federal government seeks to induce state cooperation or participation in various federal programs. That's a common feature of environmental law, for example, that the federal government doesn't want to, itself, have to implement all the key aspects of major regulatory programs, like the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, and instead would like to delegate some of that authority to the states. But as Michael already mentioned, there's a problem. The federal government can't simply tell the states what to do. Federal government can enact the Clean Air Act and say states, you must enforce these limits on polluting entities within your state. The federal government must find ways of encouraging states to play along. Uh, and again, this is a common feature of environmental law. It's, it's uh, we see it in other areas of the law as well. Uh, because of this work, I've been asked to give a presentation at a healthcare conference at the University of Kansas in February of 2011, well before the NFIB case was before the Supreme Court. Well, let alone. Uh, the There was an IRS rule on tax credits and exchanges or even litigation challenging those rules. And I was asked to do a paper looking at the way the Affordable Care Act tried to encourage or affect state involvement in the health care context, just as uh, the federal government often does in the environmental context. And in that presentation, I pointed out the language that's at issue uh, in the current litigation today, the language that provides for tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies for the purchase of qualifying health insurance in exchanges established by the state under Section 1311. And as someone that has looked at cooperative federalism for years, seeing a statute structured like this isn't particularly surprising. Again, we see this in environmental law all the the time. We see cases like New York versus United States, a case in which the Supreme Court looked at this sort of thing in which one of the things the federal government was doing was providing differential tax treatment to private parties based on whether or not the states in which those private entities uh, operated in uh, were complying with what the federal government wanted the federal government was using taxes on private parties as a way of trying to get states to sing the government's tune and so looking at the statute from that perspective there's nothing unusual here nothing that wouldn't be in the toolkit that congress regularly uses when it for whatever reason decides that rather than have the federal government do everything, it'd be nice to have states uh, participating and helping along. The other interesting thing about this presentation and it's somewhat amusing to think about in retrospect is here was a conference filled with health law scholars, state officials, folks working for the State Insurance Commission, folks working for various federal agencies, and not a single concern was raised that this was somehow an improbable or incorrect reading of the statute. No one thought it mattered. No one thought that the Supreme Court would end up hearing the challenge to the individual mandate and and the Medicaid expansion. Certainly no one thought that the Supreme Court would invalidate uh, portions of the Medicaid expansion, giving states more flexibility to refuse to cooperate. And certainly no one thought that, that 36 states would refuse to create their own exchanges. When the stakes weren't very high, it was very easy for people to say, well, this is the statute that Congress wrote. Maybe this is not what everyone in Congress would have wanted, but given the, the political events uh, uh, related to the election of Scott Brown and the loss of a, of a supermajority in the Senate, it was this bill or nothing, and so that's what we got. It was only much later when states started to suggest that they might not create the exchanges when the IRS uh, proposed this rule, that this rather straightforward interpretation of what I think is plain and unambiguous statutory text became controversial. Even the Congressional Research Service, the first time it was asked to look at this question, said that a plain text reading of the statute would seem to suggest this is all that's authorized. CRS knows what we teach in administrative law all the time, that agencies don't have inherent powers. They only have that authority which Congress actually delegates to them. The IRS can't issue a single tax credit, let alone authorize draws on the federal treasury to insurance companies or others if Congress has not authorized it. And as the DC Circuit has said for years, uh, the failure to speak to an agency's authority is not a silence or ambiguity, it is a failure to confer that authority to that agency. In fact, the DC Circuit held that in an en banc decision in 1987 written by Judge Harry Edwards, who dissented uh, in the most recent Halliburton decision, that the failure to speak to an agency's authority, the failure to delegate authority to an agency, is itself the absence of a delegation of authority. Well, now we have these suits. As Michael mentioned, there are four suits pending in four different jurisdictions. We've had two uh, co- uh, competing judgments in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. And what I want to do relatively brief, briefly is, is go through some of the legal arguments that have been raised in these cases and that are also being raised in the cases that are uh, still pending before the district courts in Indiana and Oklahoma, uh, and then say a tiny bit about uh, what comes next, and then turn it back uh, to Michael. So the central question in these cases is, is really rather simple. It's does the Affordable Care Act authorize the IRS to provide tax credits and as, an, as a consequence of that cost-sharing subsidies Uh, for the purchase of health insurance in exchanges that were not established by a state but were instead established by the federal government. And the typical way of answering a question like this is you don't look at the purpose of the statute, you look at the statute's text. Because as we know is that Congress never pursues its purpose to de infinite degree. Congress always recognizes there are constraints of funds, of resources, of political realities, and so on. And so we look to what Congress actually did. And so we look at, Section 36B of the Internal Revenue Code, and we see that credits are authorized for the purchase of insurance in an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. We look at Section 1311, and we see it directs states to establish exchanges. We look at Sections 1311 and 1312, and see that these provisions lay out various requirements for these state-established exchanges, including that the exchange, as once it's established, must be either a state entity or, or a nonprofit. We note that, as Michael already mentioned, the statute defines a state to be one of the 50 states of the District of Columbia. Congress could have defined state however it likes. It's one of the things Congress gets to do. It can define terms and statutes. And here it actually did, and it defined a state as one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. We then look at Section 1321, which is where the authority for the federal government comes from, and it says that the Secretary of Health and Human Services shall establish using that same word, shall establish such exchange if the state doesn't. And then it authorizes the Department of Health and Human Services to issue regulations uh, to ensure that that exchange operates in, in the same way. That provision, as the government has argued and as the DC Circuit pointed out, may make a Section 1321 exchange a Section 1311 exchange. It may make them the equivalent, but it's still an exchange established by the Department of Health and Human Services both in actuality and under the plain language of the statute, it's not an exchange established by the state. And that's important because when we look at the statute as a whole, and we look at the various ways Congress refers to exchanges, sometimes it says exchange, sometimes it says exchange and references statutory sections, and sometimes, as an Internal, Re- Internal Revenue Code, Section 36B, it says exchange established by the state. And a typical standard way of interpreting a statute is to say that those differences matter. Congress could have said exchange everywhere. And if so, the IRS would have a lot of flexibility. That's not what Congress did. Congress added qualifiers that limit and def- help define the meaning of what's being referenced throughout the statute. And as it turns out, and we know the IRS never actually engaged in this inquiry when issuing its rule, but it turns out if one looks through the statute, if one looks for the phrase established by the state every time in the st- it appears in the statute, we see in every place it appears it's in a provision that serves to either provide an incentive for state cooperation or to help facilitate cooperation between state exchanges and, for example, other health care entities like um, uh, Medicare and Medicaid and the like. Um, so there's actually consistency. Congress uses different terms in different places, and there's a pattern uh, to its usage. The way courts are supposed to look at these questions is that what we often refer to as, as the Chevron two-step or the Chevron doctrine. It's a two-step inquiry. First, we ask a very simple question. Did Congress speak to the precise question at issue? If so, that ends the matter. Court gives effect to what Congress did. We look at the statute, we look at other objective indicators of the statutory meaning, and see did did the did the Congress answer this question. We don't ask the agency what it thinks. Courts are very clear on this point. At step one, we don't care what the agency said. Because the law is what Congress enacted, the Administrative Procedure Act tells us that in the first instance, the courts answer questions of law, not agencies. So the court looks at the statute and to see is this particular question, are tax credits authorized in federal exchanges, is it answered by Congress? And if so, we go no further. And the courts have also been very clear, the DC Circuit has been very clear over the years, that agencies are not allowed to introduce ambiguity into an otherwise clear statutory text. This isn't a game where the agency gets to say, well, let's, let's see if we hold the statute up a particular way or decide to interpret words in different ways. Can we find ambiguity in what is otherwise clear? No, we don't. That's not the way we do it because we assume that legislators and uh, constituents should be able to read a statute and have some sense of what it means. Now, maybe that's a Herculean assumption um, in some contexts, but in a, in a lot of contexts, we're dealing with complex regulatory statutes. That is somewhat difficult. If we look at the Medicaid expansion, to to understand that states were risking all of their Medicaid money, the way the statute was written under the Medicaid expansion required familiarity with the statute, required actually looking up cross-references, because when the statute just references various provisions and satisfying requirements of various provisions, if you didn't know what those were, you wouldn't know what what the requirements were. Here, on the other hand, the language is very clear. Any member of Congress who sat down and read the bill would have seen, tax credits are provided, for purchase of insurance in an exchange established by the state. If they were curious, they could have looked at the definition of state in the statute. This wasn't uh, the sort of obscure or hard to understand statutory reference. The other thing that's important to remember uh, about this inquiry is that complexity does not mean ambiguity. Ambiguity means that there really is some uh, uh, unresolvable uh, inability to determine the precise meaning of the statute or the scope of a statutory term. But the doctrine is not that just because Congress is doing something difficult or complicated that makes it ambiguous. It just means that courts when reviewing the statute and agencies when implementing the statute have to take their time and make sure they focus on what the statute actually says. The other point about Chevron that's important to remember and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention the majority in 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 Halbig didn't address it or didn't need to reach it, and uh, the dissent in, in the DC Circuit opinion and, and the opinions in the Fourth Circuit, for whatever reason, did not address it. Is that even when we are going to, when we decide a statute is ambiguous, the court must also be sure that that ambiguity is evidence of a delegation of authority to the agency? DC Circuit and, and Supreme Court have both indicated that ambiguity in and of itself in a vacuum is not enough because the Chevron Doctrine is based on the premise that when Congress has not fully detailed how something is supposed to apply, it has handed off that authority to the agency. It has delegated that authority to the agency to use its expertise to fill in the gaps, to define things more precisely. And moreover, that when an agency exercises this authority, it still must engage in reasoned decision-making. It is still supposed to explain why it is doing what it is doing, why it is reaching the statutory interpretation that it is imposing. And here, if one goes and looks at the Federal Register, when the IRS finalized its rule, one finds a vague, conclusory paragraph simply saying, well, we think this is consistent with the statutory purpose, and we haven't found anything that says we can't. Certainly when I clerked on the DC Circuit, certainly in reading almost every DC Circuit opinion that's come out in the past 25 years, because my wife says I'm a bit of a dork and, and enjoy doing that sort of thing, it's hard to find many decisions that would find something like that to approach reasoned decision making. When the EPA decides it's gonna regulate greenhouse gases from, from power plants under section 111, it produces a substantial legal memorandum detailing why it thinks it can interpret the statute that way. The IRS gave us a paragraph with no statutory references, no citation to statutory language, no citation to legislative history, nothing it did not even engage in the sort of reasoned decision-making uh, that it should uh, engage in. Now, um, quickly, because I know that, that uh, we want to save some time and questions, let's make one of their points, in, or a few other points. One is in the, the public debate about these cases. The argument is often made, "Oh, well, it would be absurd to condition tax credits on, say, cooperation, because if, as it turned out, states don't cooperate, look at the mess we get. There are a couple quick things to say about that. First, Congress actually does that all the time. What's different here is that states called Congress's bluff. Spent a lot of time working on the Clean Air Act. If 36 states tomorrow said, we are not issuing state implementation plans, you EPA have to issue all permits under the Clean Air Act. You have to develop federal implementation plans for all 36 states. The air pollution program under the Clean Air Act would grind to a halt. The state of Texas by itself conducts more facility investigations in a single year than the EPA does nationwide. The EPA cannot take over the entire air regulatory program of a dozen, let alone 36 states. Why have we never faced that problem? Because 36 states have never done that. Why? Well, because there are incentives not to do so. States face more stringent regulatory requirements if they don't comply with the Clean Air Act, and they lose a lot of money. Not simply money for air pollution control programs, but money for highways. Benefits, things that benefit the constituents of states get taken away if the states don't cooperate. Medicaid itself, if states had called the federal government's bluff, would result in the the, the denial of benefits to quite a few uh, folks in needy populations. But again, states haven't called that bluff. What's different here is not what Congress did. What's different here is what states did. that states said no. Other thing to point out though is that The government in its briefing has not argued that this language is a mistake, and it's not really argued the absurd results doctrine either, and the reason is because the doctrine on those questions is very clear. To prevail on those arguments as a legal matter, the government would have to show that it is not possible that Congress could have drafted a statute that means what the language clearly says. And given that Congress has done this sort of thing before, that's a burden that the federal government knows it can't meet, which is why if you read the briefs, the federal government is not making those arguments. Even though, if you look on the blogs and in magazines and so on, many commentators are. So it's important to distinguish between kind of the arguments that may uh, sound good in a soundbite versus those that actually have some some uh, legal import. Um, there's some other arguments that are being made that I all I, I, well, we can deal with them in questions if if, if uh, folks um, want to. Um, Let's deal with with one other one that's pointed to a lot, is that when Congress sought to revise portions of of the Affordable Care Act through the reconciliation process, through something called the HCERA, it added reporting requirements that are expressly applied to both Section 1311 state exchanges and Section 1321 federal exchanges. And the argument is made is that Congress would not have done this if subsidies were not available in both state and federal exchanges, because some of the information that must be reported relates to subsidies. There are a couple problems with this. One is, if one actually looks at what Congress did, it referenced both Section 1311 and Section 1321. So when Congress had its first opportunity to deal with the PPACA, it saw the need to identify both state and federal exchanges separately, not to sweep them together under one simple heading. Uh, That is certainly an indication of what the same Congress that enacted the PPACA actually saw that it did. The other thing that's important to note is that it's undisputed, that not everyone who purchases insurance in an exchange gets tax credits and subsidies. Uh, And there must be eligibility terminations. And yet, state exchanges must fulfill these reporting requirements with regard to all people that are purchasing insurance in the exchanges, even those that get no subsidies. So so it's simply not true that there would be no reporting where there are not subsidies. There is reporting for folks that don't get subsidies, including the poorest of the working poor who as the statute is written and as no one has contested, are ineligible for studies in subsidies in any state because the statute has both a ceiling for your income to get subsidies as well as a floor. Further evidence that Congress was capable of enacting all sorts of things in this statute under the assumption that it wouldn't matter because states would cooperate. If all states cooperated, all states expanded Medicaid, the fact that the poorest of the working poor don't get subsidies wouldn't matter. It matters because states decided not to cooperate. So where are we now? Well, we have these two decisions, uh, one from the D.C. Circuit, one from the Fourth Circuit. The D.C. Circuit held that the statute unambiguously forecloses the IRS interpretation. Credits uh, must be in an exchange established by a state under Section 1311. And the court said, we have exchanges. We may even concede they're under Section 1311 because 1321 exchanges are equivalent, but they are still not established by a state. We are not going to render this language repeated throughout the statute be meaningless surplusage, uh, merely because it's more convenient or might make the implementation of the statute easier now that we know states aren't cooperating. One one judge dissented, arguing the statute is ambiguous and that uh, the court should have deferred to the IRS. This was also the conclusion of two of the judges on the US Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. One judge on the Fourth Circuit held that the statute uh, directly supported the IRS's position. Only one of the six appellate judges thought that the statute directly supported the IRS position. And note that if um, the final resolution of this case litigation is that um, the statute is ambiguous and the court should defer to the IRS, a future administration could, with the stroke of a pen, uh, revert uh, the, the, stat- the implementation to the clear statutory language. Uh, Chevron deference allows for agencies to change their mind. There's a petition for rehearing on Bonk in the DC Circuit. It was filed. the federal government on august 1st Uh, the response is due at the end of the week Uh, the administration filed this i think most folks recognize because it hopes to eliminate the circuit split and therefore reduce the likelihood that the supreme court will review this decision it's worth noting that the dc circuit historically has been very stingy at granting en banc uh, petitions typically no more than one a year granted two this year didn't grant any last year uh, and historically has not considered a circuit split to be a particularly important reason to grant on bonk rehearing. That's not the sort of question that has typically motivated uh, the DC Circuit in the last 10 to 15 years or so of granting on banc petitions. There is also a cert petition filed in King versus Sibelius by the plaintiffs uh, before the Supreme Court uh, that will be acted upon uh, in the fall and could be acted upon whether or not the DC Circuit decides to take this case on banc. I've probably already gone on longer than Michael wanted me to, so I will stop there.
2: So before we get to questions, I just wanted to wrap up by uh, noting that Jonathan and I have been at this for a while. We've been debating these issues, uh, and now these lawsuits, King v. Burwell, Halbig uh, v. Burwell. Uh, and and there's, there's really something, after doing this for a while, you, notice, you start to notice there's really something absurd about, about these debates. Everyone knows what established by the state means. Everyone knows. I know what it means. You know what it means. The Obama administration knows what it means. The judges know what it means. And, those, and if you want to, uh, and the eligibility rules for, for the PPACA's subsidies, the premium assistance tax credits, the eligibility rules are where you would go to find out what, who Congress wanted to get those subsidies. And that's what the eligibility rules say. Qualified taxpayers enrolled, quote, through an exchange established by the state. In trying to determine who's eligible for these subsidies, however, the Obama administration and its defenders look to everything but the eligibility rules that Congress wrote. They look throughout the statute, trying to find something, something to show that there's some ambiguity about what Congress meant when it said you have to enroll through an exchange established by the state. But they, they keep running into brick walls. They keep running into brick walls because, remarkably, there's no inconsistency in the statute. And Jonathan and I were surprised to reach that conclusion. Like so many supporters of the law, so many supporters of the law, we expected this provision was a drafting error. We were wrong. And what's interesting now is we're watching people, now that we've got a ruling against the IRS, against the Obama administration in Halbig v. Burwell, and this issue is getting more attention, a lot of people are delving into the statute. a lot of people are delving into the legislative history. And what we're watching now is a lot of the administration's defenders Working their way through the same evidence, through the same statutory provisions, and running into the same brick walls that we did when we started researching this years ago. And the conclusion that we reached at the end of this, uh, the conclusion that we have reached is actually kind of a disquieting one. In 2011, the Obama administration unilaterally decided to tax and borrow and spend billions of dollars. Treasury and IRS officials, as Jonathan said, cited no statutory authority for that decision. And they would later tell congressional investigators they knew they did not have statutory authority to do this, but they did it anyway. The impact of that decision has been enormous. Insurers have chosen to participate in the PPACA's exchanges who would otherwise not have done so. Employers have reconfigured their health insurance benefits, eliminating jobs, reducing people's hours, people like teaching assistants and restaurant workers, to comply with a mandate from which they are, by law, exempt. Millions of Americans are already paying penalties under or have purchased health insurance coverage to comply with an individual mandate from which they are, by law, exempt. Nearly 5 million Americans agreed to enroll in an exchange plan with the promise of subsidies that the Obama administration had no authority to offer them, subsidies that could vanish with one court ruling, or as Jonathan mentioned, a future president could take away with a stroke of a pen. With every unauthorized subsidy that flows from the IRS to insurance companies as a result of uh, of this uh, decision by the administration, the federal debt rises above the level authorized by law. And that imposes an unauthorized tax burden on not just current, but also future generations. The administration's decision has also had a sweeping impact on the political process. Think about what would have, well, it has denied states and denied voters in, in those 36 states the use of a policy lever that Congress granted them. The ability to veto the PPACA's subsidies, employer mandate, and to a large extent, its individual mandate. In effect, that, this, this decision by the Obama administration has disenfranchised voters in 36 states that exercised those vetoes. Had the administration followed the law, those 36 vetoes would have led to changes in the PPACA and maybe even changes in Congress. Instead, from 2011 through today, this decision has altered the outcome of congressional votes to repeal the PPACA and likely the outcome of congressional elections. Americans voted in 2012 as if there were not a gaping hole in the PPACA that would expose its full cost to people who are enrolling through the exchanges and destabilize its regulatory scheme and lead to uh, that. which would have led to a backlash against the law. The IRS is still influencing congressional elections today by issuing these subsidies, because potential candidates are deciding whether or not to enter races in 2014 and 2016 as if that gaping hole does not exist, as if the law Congress enacted were more popular and more successful than it actually is. So as I began uh, this, uh, this discussion today, On July 22nd, the second highest court in the nation ruled that the Obama administration is violating the law and not in a small way.